Well, it's, you know, for the vast majority of a largely urban population, it's food choice, isn't it? And, um, you know, if you're lucky enough to um, live near Charles Dowding or one of the many farms that are, uh, you know, growing in interesting ways, favouring biodiversity, you know, milling on site or whatever, it is, you know, growing vegetables and that way, whatever it is, and you can go actually make the effort to go and get your stuff from them and support them, then fantastic. Our job as wild farmed is to, is, um, to say for a, for a majority of urban population who don't generally live near people doing those things, we're just trying to get this uh, flower in enough places so that everyone on their street corner uh, has access to it. Before we start, I want to tell you, all our courses are now available on our new companion app. So we have 11 courses, our Happy Heart course with a, consult- with a cardiologist, our Good Health Revolution with a consultant gastroenterologist, and loads more. And we've had thousands and thousands of people, and they really do work. If you add the value of all these courses together, it comes to how much, Dave? More than a grand. Yeah. What but, I was sending like an outlet. Our companion app now, they're 150 euro, which might sound like a lot, but to get all the access to all these, and most people know what to do to live healthy, but most people struggle to do it. So how does our app or our companion app So well, what we realised was that people, you know, we, our courses were typically six weeks in, in time, but we realised it was too short a time for people to change their lives. It really was. So we've uh, turned it into a membership where it's a yearly membership. You can join for a month if you want. But, um, and it's all about supporting you over a year and having time to transform people's lives. And so also another good, perk, another good perk with it is we're now doing live podcasts. So if you're part of our app, you'll be able to tune in to our podcast being recorded and ask questions at the end. Anyway, there you are. Okay, well, Welcome to this week's podcast. Uh, and on much more exciting news, Sarah is back in the studio with her little baby boy strapped her. So firstly, ladies and gentlemen, can we have a round of applause for the wonderful Ralph? Yay! And a round of applause for Ralph's mother, Sarah. Oh, thanks guys. Feel very yes. special. Ralph finally has a name. He was called Mush for the first two and a half weeks of his life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to the point that my granny uh, actually came in to me like, and was like, I need to talk to you. And I was like, what, what about? And she's like, it's serious. It's like, okay. And she's like, he can't go to school being called mush. He'll get bullied. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to pick a name for him. I just haven't picked it yet. Like, can't be mush for the rest of his life. Wow. Or maybe. I still call him mush. He's turned into my little mushroom. Oh, my little mushroom. Yeah. So how and you guys Sarah looks up wonderfully maternal sitting there in the chair. And Ralph is like <laughs> four weeks, to Sarah. He's four weeks old and he's just strapped her in this perfect kind of, you know, perfect maternal. It's like my maternal. belly is now on the outside. Yeah, it's just beautiful. Yeah, little Ralph that was on the inside. So what, how have you been since I've been gone? Four weeks. A lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> We've been a lot of things. It's the honest answer. I couldn't been just, I couldn't happy, say overjoyed, good, sad, good. overwhelmed, stressed, Exhausted. everything in between. Tired. All because I wasn't around. Guys. Yes. All because. Jesus, all because. how did you cope without me? <laughs> and tell me, uh, is there one like aha moment that you're like, ping, that was just... The oh, highlight. I guess the last month there's been so much focus on the app. You were also away on your honeymoon. Oh, oh yeah, the honeymoon Jesus. was actually more important than my yeah. app. <laughs> well, tell us about the app and then you can tell us about the uh, Well, no, the honeymoon was great, yeah. yeah. <laughs> of, course. of course it was. It well, you was went to Namibia, life. didn't we you? We went to Namibia for two weeks yeah. and we had a total adventure. It was great crack. It really yeah. was. It was amazing. Yeah, saw loads of animals and stuff. It was more like travelling, wasn't it? It was travelling like we were, We like Namibia is a massive country. It's got only two million people in Where it. Where is it? It's in Africa. Whereabouts? Um, Just above South, South Africa. Africa. It's down like at the bottom end of, South, uh, of Africa, and it's massive. Like it's, I think it's this something like where, uh, your twenty times in. the size of 
UK and it's got like only 2 million people so it's nearly all like nothing like you drive like it's all gravel roads and it's like 360 degrees of just mountains and like horizon like it's it's just so different my favourite story is the one of the giraffe Oh, the giraffe. Yeah, yeah, literally. Literally one morning we're staying in this one place and I ask him, man, is it safe enough to go for a run in the morning because we were trying to do our 50 kilometre run? And your man says, yeah, it should be. Like, you know, I haven't met any. And I was like, okay, cool. So I get up at uh, 6 a.m. and I, I'm leaving the little hut that we were staying in, our little building. And I'm walking down the road and it's dusk and I'm just going down the gravel trail and going, Jesus, be interesting. I've got a head torch with me and there's loads of rustling in the bushes beside me. And, I, and the night before we'd gone to see all these big cats, like these lions and lionesses and leopards and all. And I was like, oh my god this if, if one of those animals got out I'm dead meat and I, I was thinking of this like a bit like the way when I was a kid and you used to go to the cold shed and you'd think the boogeyman was there but anyway <laughs> uh, there's loads of rustling in the bushes and I knew it wasn't like just a little springbok or a little like a little mouse or something because it was like proper rustling and then a feckin' giraffe just comes booting across the road I'm like Oh my God. And I, I literally started running after them and I spent the whole morning running after, they call them, a, I think it's called a troop. No, it's called a, <laughs> a tower of giraffes. A tower of giraffes. That's like a family of giraffes. And I spent, I'd say two and a half hours running around uh, I wouldn't say after them because I wasn't hunting them <laughs> but like I was running and they kept crossing me and then I'd run over this way and follow them and it was it was just such a crazy I wonder what experience. they were thinking like who the hell is this weird little man he's like, <laughs> just, like he's following us he was alone yeah, yeah, very different anyway uh, well, so that was your uh, highlight that was only me. and then the app coming out because we've been birthing this for two years I know you were pregnant for nine months and I was birthing Ralph. something physical but, but this is your but this was a two year creative process yeah, yeah. two year pregnancy and, it was, and it's been kind of like you know as much as it's been exciting and fun I'm delighted we're near at the end of launch week because it's quite this kind of thing in the background almost like you're studying for exams it's like can you do enough you know that way yeah and it's like oh my god thank goodness we're well, out I think there. it will we're, be never yeah. ending guys yeah well I'm delighted a to continuous be road. onto the next well, it's a bit like you can't wait to go through labour to have your child and it's only once you have your child so then you're like oh yeah. but but it's still a huge like milestone. So you when forget the, the difficult part. Yeah, and yeah, you're doing it again. exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. There you go. Yeah, yeah but uh, you, one thing I think is, gas. You guys have been doing like uh, little lives, like every evening and morning. I just see like behind the scenes of Dave stretching or doing some some weird pose. Or and we did one last night, which was kind of interesting. We did it. It was the first time we did it where it was like we were trying to incorporate social accountability. So there's only about twenty people on it, and it was like how to do breakout rooms and kind of encourage them rather than often when you do a Zoom like that, people are passive and it's like, okay, what are you going to teach me? And this one was about like, no, we're going to do breakout rooms and you're going to have to talk. To and others. we had questions like, you know, it was it was really fun. And how did people did people? It, it was awkward initially, but then like by the time it finished, everyone was highly engaged, like. Eyes were a lot more lit up. People were smiling a lot more and they were interacting. So it was like, although it was awkward and slightly uncomfortable at the start, the, the end result, at least visually, what I could see was suddenly all cameras were turned on. People were all switched on, like engaged. So it was like, yeah, it was, it was cool. pretty cool. It was nice to be trying to do something different. And do you do these lives like every day or how does it work? Well, that was the first time we did that one. And then, yeah, every day there's some form of a live. Like to, we've got our live podcast, which we're doing this afternoon. Yeah. And then we have tomorrow morning, I'm doing a Rise and Shine, which is 20 minute morning stretch and breath work with Dave. Nice. Good Dave. Tomorrow evening, Bra Raj is doing a little wind end meditation. He does just before bed at 9 p.m. Unreal. I think he's doing that tonight. Dr. Al's in on Dr. Wednesday. Dr. Al's in on Wednesday evening. He's doing a Q&A. We good have... Health. We have, yeah, we're doing a cooking demo, one of the, like there's loads of stuff on, like it's really, it's really, really fun. It's fun, it's to actually make it live and where people feel a part of it. Yeah, and, and they can ask people questions to as well. So, yeah. Well, probably not while you're doing your stretches, but. Uh, but they can come on camera and say something if they want. Like, That's you know, there's, there's, yeah. We're in for chaos, <laughs> chaos is welcome too. Yeah. I yeah. love that. Which is great. And uh, then Mr. Stephen Flynn. 
<sighs> other than your uh, you did run 52 kilometers yeah like. and if anyone okay listen to this is looking for seeing like literally like what would, what would be the word like scenery where you are literally you know that word awesome and it seems like this American word totally awesome but like where literally your breath is taken away and you're like I don't know am I in the moon or am I like have I just been transported to some computer game we we came down this hill down to a harbour can you remember the name of the harbour yeah. Ballantoy Harbour and we got there and it was literally like everything just became brighter and it was like you were just born again looking at it it was just this insanely beautiful scenery and we ran along and you were like the waves were wild the sun came out we had to climb over a cliff and run down it just felt like I feel like I am on the edge of the world and just I feel overjoyed and just bathing in awesomeness. It was incredible. <laughs> so if anyone's looking for like magnificent scenery that will literally take your breath away, it was literally the best Where scenery was I've it? ever seen. Northern Ireland up it's called the called the called the Causeway Coastal Path or the Ulster Way, isn't it? Yeah. So it's it. we we ran from Ballycastle to Port Ballycastle to fifty two K and it was a it was a journey. It was such fun. And big shout out to the legend that is Shawnee Cahill. He a year ago Shawnee probably couldn't even run two K and he ran fifty two K and he was a legend look so, at you go Shawnee there well you are done. there we are <laughs> I bumped into a lady called Natasha yesterday who oh, said she would do the yoga with yeah, you yeah she was the support she was class she was class and she was yeah. like She's to Debbie. me and Harold I've heard your names you She's sound class. lovely you can come Lucy. up and stay with us at any point Natasha's amazing <laughs> and then Lucy yeah. came around with the kids which all the kids yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's dead. Yeah, yeah, I actually saw a picture of you all doing, or maybe you guys didn't do it, but Lucy and the kids all having face masks on. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Deal included. So, this week's podcast. This week's podcast is a really special one and something very dear to our hearts. So, we were at an event with Vivo back a number of months ago, and it was a real special event. It was in, what was that lovely place called? Petersham Nursery. Petersham Nursery. And Richmond. it was kind of a special one. A friend, Zach Bush, was over, and he was doing a talk, and Tony Riddle was doing a workshop, and it was a real magical evening. We arrived with Sam, who we did a podcast with recently, our friend Sam. And before we got out of the taxi, we were like, lads, let's have the best night ever. And we got back in the taxi, and it was like, I was actually up there. That was an incredible night. And on that night, I was chatting to this tall guy, George. And George kind of like spoke of this thing called Wild Farmed. And it was like, this sounds pretty interesting. He invited me up to see the farm. And I was like, I'm not sure about this, but let's go. George seemed fascinating, really interesting. So we went and met George and we'd just come from meeting Charles Dowding and met George. And George came out of like this train station dressed in this like, almost like a onesie. It was like a one-piece tracksuit and a nice shiny pair of sneakers. And he said, yeah, I'm from a rough part of London. And I know I'm like nearly 40 but like I can't get beyond a nice shiny tracksuit and a good pair of runners like this is a sign of I've made it in his world um, we got a taxi all the way out to the farm and we met Andy so we grew up listening to Groove Armada and it was just this rock and DJ or band whichever we, we kind of talked about and we arrived on this farm and it was this big old farm and the sun came out and George just gave us these big thick cherries cherries from the cherry tree and we met Andy. Andy must be nearly seven foot tall. Like George is already six foot five and you feel kind of small in George's presence. And Andy comes in and he's approximately seven foot tall. Or he's about six foot eight. Six foot like eight. Truth, yeah, exactly, story. yeah, yeah. And there's little Dave standing there and they're going, Dave, is your name not Ned? We were like, <laughs> like <"Hey>, sweet. <laughs> he just looked so small. And we, we hop up in the back of this pickup, like literally like we did in Mexico, you know, we're in the back of the pickup and he takes us out to the fields and he explains to us about what they're, what they're doing here where they literally grow multiple types of wheat. You know, he was all about... Or wheat 
barley and like and a nitrogen fixing. Um, beam. He's got he's got the most incredible story. We went into his kitchen and we set up mics and we really didn't know what to, what to expect. And his story of what he's been through over the last fifteen years of being this incredible rock star DJ and then putting all his money into a farm and really going up against chaining the farming system of how they grow cereals is absolutely like it is. It's one of the most enjoyable conversations I've ever had in his kitchen and just so inspiring and such a humble kind man of the earth that is going about almost like the way Gandhi you know goes around quiet revolution a, 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 a quiet peaceful revolution like what he's doing is amazing what they're doing in Wild Farm and this conversation such a wonderful conversation I think it's so important that we all like listen to this support this share this if you resonate with this because it's something that we all really need to at the centre of all economy is food most people think at the centre of economy it's, it's pharmacies or ph- pharmaceutical or it's technology but if we don't have food we die and how we grow food massively impacts our greater yeah and what he's doing is anyway what they're what they're doing is all regenerative cereal farming which is all about nourishing the soil and, and growing it, multiple varieties and it, like it's it's it, he'll get into the weeds of it quite literally and it's amazing really really is and a, a number a couple of times we might have actually said the name slightly wrong oh yeah sometimes I called it and this is Stephen I do apologise it's called wild farmed and regularly I called it wild, wild flower or wildflower, yeah, because because they, we, we, we buy flour from them, so I didn't want to, I got mixed up, so it's wild farmed. Dave, quick question for you. Where do you go when you're looking for vitamins or yoga mats or electrolytes or like kind of movement or yoga equipment? Well, Stephen, wait and I tell you here. So, Can't um, wait. Yeah, it's going to be very exciting. Imagine there was one place on the internet, the home of all of the best health brands that you could purchase. All the things that you need without the fuss of going to different websites or even to different stores. Wouldn't that be cool? Sounds pretty cool. Yeah, tell me more yes. about this, Dave. Well, these two other super exuberant, excited, identical twins. Yes, we did say identical Just twins. Just like us. Yes, started a business called health.com. And the idea is that it's a portal with all the best health brands that you do not get in other places. And they've all been validated by them, by their community and by experts. So it saves you having to go through reviews and whatnot. They have really high standards, fantastic products. That's cool. I hate looking through reviews. Yes, Listen. they do everything from and hair most products. Most of your friends that come on this have discount codes. Do you have one of these for us? Dave? Oh yeah, we do. Yeah. Oh, jeez, I was just getting there. Thanks. Dave. <laughs> so yeah, we've got a twenty percent discount code. Our friends from health.com discount code twenty percent off. The code is healthy pair h e a l t h y p e a r. That's health.com healthy pair, and you get twenty percent. H you spell health.com is h e a l f dot com and the discount code is H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-P-E-A-R for 20% off and rumour has it we just got a box we did just get a box I just opened it it's really really cool we got all sorts of stuff from MCT oils to um, Lion's Mane supplement sprays we had electrolytes we had an acupressure mat we got journals really really cool stuff genuinely do check it out you get everything from hair products to vitamins to supplements to movement equipment they have so much really cool stuff so health.com do check them out woo so ladies and gentlemen without further ado we give you the wonderful Andy Cato from Wild Farmed so welcome we're sitting here in Andy's kitchen eating cherries picked from the tree just out the back we've got about an hour this should be epic it's quite an intro yeah <laughs> well we'll probably do an intro after but that's <laughs> yeah but um excuse the scent of cherries here it was glorious seeing the farm they're absolutely incredible so admire your work your courage your bravery and your commitment to something with such integrity and such necessity really with the broken food system we are existing in right now yeah i mean it's uh you know once you once you've seen this stuff you can't unsee it you know which is um probably why since that 
fateful day 17 years ago when I read an article on the way back from a gig which ended with the line, if you don't like the system, don't depend on it. Um, that kind of thing of like that voyage of discovery, what, as I say, once you start realizing the state we're in, but also the potential to get out of the state we're in, uh, you can't look away really. It becomes an obsession. Jeez, that was literally, it was literally a line from an article 17 years ago that was just made you go from kind of ignorance into, ah, oh, into action. Yeah, I was like a sort of casual, organic food eater just because I sort of read a few articles about pesticides. But that was kind of it, really, you know. Um, and I, when I was vegetarian as well, on sort of animal rights grounds, I'm not anymore, but we can come back to that. Um, and uh, and so yeah, but that was that was the, instead of my engagement with with food. And then when this yeah, I read this article about industrial food production or chemical food production, whatever you want to call it, and it had that line: "If you don't like the system, don't depend on it." And so I was like, right, let's uh, let's start growing veg. But I, you know, I'd never planted a seed in my life. So I found this book um, from the 70s called. Um, John Seymour's Guide to Self-Sufficiency. He's and Irish. Irish. Yeah. And He's Irish from Wexford. Is he? Yeah. yeah. What a cracking book that is. So I had a, uh, I got it in half. That, that was the first Bible. Yeah, that was the Bible. So that was tucked in my record box. Uh, and so it's a sort of strange dual life for a while trying to get that going. And were you always so idealistic and up for a cause? Because it's rare that people actually read something and transition it into action. Most people like, maybe before I go into that, how did you get into like so? So you you had a is it, do I call it a band? I know the music group. I'm DJ, right, but I know, let's call it a band. Deep, well, I think is we're it a band or is it a DJ? Sorry, excuse my ignorance. It's it's a band that, and we also DJ. But it's it's a band first and foremost. You know, we made albums and and played live, and we also played records. Yeah, amazing impact because I know the music and I know everyone knows so the music. well. But it's yeah, you seldom look behind it. What's that? You seldom look behind it. Who are the people? Who are they? What's yeah, their background? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, that's the tune. Yeah, it was quite nice to be anonymous. We could go to all the after parties and no one would know what we were doing. Wow. How, many, how long did that go on for? Well, I mean, it's technically not over, really. I mean, we did a little um, end of end of our live-type touring uh, tour this April where we did a couple of weeks and go around our favourite venues in the UK. And we've got a couple of COVID-postponed festivals uh, this summer. Um, and uh, yeah, as we were talking about in the yard there, but we were, you know, we were kicking them out of Glastonbury a little bit, and uh, with the, with the kids and stuff, and playing some records. So, um, yeah, you know, but we've we've been going for twenty five years. This is our twenty fifth anniversary, so um, that's a lot of vodka and tonic. <laughs> and how many is it? You and a few other lads. It's me and Tom. Um, so we're the ones who, who who DJ. We write the tunes and whatnot, and um, and then when we play live, we do it. Because a lot of dance music, when it's live, is is kind of like a load of synths on stage and some lights. And we took the, the decision early on to actually play live as a band. And that's actually the thing that we ended up being most proud of, really. And that gang of people who make that possible, um, the musicians on stage, but also the people you don't see, or the technical squad in the background. You know, that's been the same crew that we've been on the road with for, well, best part of 20 years now. So they're, they're absolutely golden. So that's family? Yeah, totally family. Yeah, they're just, you couldn't have toured the world with a better group of people than that. Jeez, wow. Okay, so you go from, so you've got this incredible chapter of music icon reaching platforms, which most artists that go, oh my God. And most people listening go, jeez, wow, Groove Armada, that's amazing. Living the rock, like living the rock star life, you know, and, and often modern day culture, that's what is celebrated. That's what people crave yeah, yeah. and no, I mean, it's, it's, in, it's interesting, you know, that like when the 
well, we'll go skip it forward a bit. When, when the, the school kids who we were making bread for used to come to the farm in France, I used to start my presentation there with a with a photo of when we played the other stage at Glastonbury on Sunday night. I actually had so many lasers that we got we got warnings from Heathrow Airport to turn some of them off. But it's quite a mad photo. It's like 70,000 people, laser going mad. And then the next photo, because at the time I was farming with horses, is me behind three <laughs> French equivalent of shire horses. And, uh, and as you say, like by our culture... You know, you look at the first photo, you think that that bloke's got it all, uh, and so why on earth do you do you walk away from that, and do something else? But that's um, so it's a good way to get people interested in. It's amazing. Well, well it's the, it's the, the sexy. It's like sticking, you know, sticking your sexy little bit of lingerie, out and you're going, ooh, it draws <laughs> people in. You know the way, or at least draws. Yeah. Anyway, um, and then how, how was it living that rock and roll lifestyle? Was it as alluring and fulfilling as modern day culture often? projects aren't it i think that you know you can't underestimate the feeling when you're you're standing on the side of stage about to play music that you've written and the lights go down and you're with a great group of mates and there's that roar from the crowd when the lights go off that is just if you could bottle that you'd sell a lot of those bottles you know <laughs> it's like euphoria it's like just it's just sheer. kind of i don't know and there's probably a nervousness as well yeah, it's all sort of that the best bit of apprehension mixed with adrenaline i mean god knows what's going on in there but that is an incredible credible feeling you know and i think so you have that bit and then because we were you know quite sort of communist really in in the sort of distribution of of just making sure everyone was sorted out um, crew wise and band wise and so as a result it was just a, a, a squad there was no sort of tiers or hierarchy in there we were just a crew and what that meant was that either with the live band like that or with me and Tom on the road you find yourself in like the most absurd situations uh, and it was all a group of people who like were utterly professional but really enjoyed an after party as well and exploring <laughs> the towns that we were in and, and same with me and Tom so We've been through all this madness, but are surrounded by people who always see the funny side of it all, never take themselves seriously, but also up for exploring the the darkest and uh, weirdest corners of wherever we happen to be in the world. So it's been it's been the best of combinations. And, and in your life, like when did that journey start and kind of shift into the your current it, current chapter? Really, was it like? Well, I played music all my life, you know, so I was doing jazz gigs when I was young and then uh, I got into house music in, uh, God, it makes me <clears throat> nervous even saying it, but in the late 80s, early 90s. And was that uh, piano or what, did you, what was your instrument of choice? Trombone and piano to start with. And I started playing bass guitar when I wanted to be cooler. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so yeah, I was doing all that and then, and then yeah, I, I went out and heard um, Sasha uh, DJing in the early 90s and that sort of turned things around his head I had my cousin who had the DIY sound system going who were doing all the free parties uh, back in the day so that sort of that opened my eyes a lot as well and so I got drawn into the electronic music thing and so Groove Armada I was already living in London and sort of you know working in piano restaurant bars in fact memorable one called No Jacket Required which is a Phil Collins theme bar wow. so tinkling away there from a dinner and, you know, on the dole and just trying to get some records out there and stuff. And Groove Armada properly started in probably 97, 96, something like that. So, uh, And you were like 20 years old or something? Or? No, I was older because I'd been to university by then. So I was, I was 72. So I was about 24, 25, yeah. Wow. And mum and dad were saying, two more years left, otherwise you have to get a proper job. <laughs> and cap, boom, that was it. Necessity, the mother and of creativity. The, the rocket ship took off. 
Yeah, you know, we we you know, you make your own luck to a degree, but you do need luck in that game and we got lucky and we made this little tune called At the River and Zoe Ball played it on Radio One and then she got married to, to Norman Cook, Fat Boy Slim, and that was their wedding tune and you know, you just need those rolls of the dice really. Jeez. And then it rolls on to the the kind of music thing as the principal purpose rolled on about fifteen years or something, was it, or ten years before you read that line? No, well uh, longer, really. I'm all up yeah, best part of twenty. And um uh, yeah, so you very f- quickly go from a situation when we were like DJing in what were then the kind of ruined warehouses of East London. It was all like, it was just a different era where, you know, around dance music then it was a social movement as well. I mean, principally people were having a good time, but it was a social movement and there was no red rope and there was no champagne, there was no VIP. It was like almost against all of that that dance music existed. And then you kind of get... It was throat. like to break down the kind of... Yeah, there was no... The fluff, no, the fanciness, the... Just, just the, yeah. the, the, the tearing. It was for everyone. It was just rootsy, you know, and like there was the, the, the DJ was in the corner, he didn't know you know who was playing, that sort of got God as a DJ stuff, but it couldn't have been further from the reality. And then all of a sudden, you sort of go in this uh, washing machine, you come out the other end and you're in Los Angeles and you've like, you've got a gig 10 yards down the road, but you have to go in the limo because you've got to get make the right entrance, all this bullshit, you know, but kind wow, of, the kind of hilarious, kind of hilarious, but um, great to have experienced it. Yeah. And that rolled through until coming back from, um, from this gig and I picked up this article and, and then the rest is history. Yeah. And where was this and what age were you then? This article, this significant moment. Yeah. So that would have been, uh, 2005 or six, probably something like that. Uh, and um, so you're 32 or something, right? yes, yeah, 32, 33. Uh, and um, and I was coming back from a gig in Uzbekistan, as uh, you do, so, as you do, one of the biggest grain producers. Yeah, well, in fact, the, the guy who's going to come and help me here is doing a harvest over there at the minute, and he's sending me these Mad Max photos from over there, it's insane. Because it all got dammed up, apparently, when it was under the Soviet occupation. They, they dammed all the rivers. So it's this, it is, literally looks like Mad Max. That's barren and uh, just Totally barren and then everything's irri- irrigated, but there's all kinds of backhanders for the water supply. I mean, it's quite pretty dystopian. Wow. Yeah, Jeez. certainly where he is. And were you always interested in food? Like, was it obviously, like you said, you're a vegetarian, but like... To read an article and suddenly go straight to action is a but, very dramatic. Can I, can I go? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, it's real. Like, it's like, it's just such a change. Like, surely there was something in the background. And, like, just to give a context, like, we we went and over a course of about two years changed our diet massively. But the precursor was that was like dissatisfaction, disillusionment. Surely there's more to life than making a load of money and being quote unquote successful. Successful. So there was all this questioning in the background. And surely, like, what was your relationship with food before you actually. And idealism. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, well, food, food wise, um, uh, my wife, Jo's a brilliant cook. uh, And, um, and I, you know, before this madness started, used to enjoy on a very basic level doing a bit of cooking, but you know, I I love food, like sitting down at a table. We've lived in France for, for, you know, however long now until recently, 15, 16 years. So, that ritual of like the meal being the moment where you come together and you sit down um, is something that I've always loved. So I've, 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 I've been into that, but I think the the reason why that article, and also there was a, actually, there was a bit bubbling in the background because I, I'd, I'd started doing some blogging around the, um, the Copenhagen climate, climate 
conferences and stuff like that. So I was, you know, I've been reading the articles. You don't need to be re- read many of them back then about you know climate change to start you know thinking this is not good. You know, but I, like most people, um, hadn't made the link between that and how we grow our food. But we can come back to that in a minute. But the thing that made that action point, I think, is simply that. So I got the John Seymour thing, built a little greenhouse, uh, sowed my first tomato. This is in France now? Yeah. This is in... Yeah, okay. it's France, yeah. Sowed my first tomato seeds and lettuce seeds. But like taking these seeds out of the packet, just thinking this is incomprehensible, that this is this can really become food on my table, this tiny little thing. It doesn't make any sense. You know, and you put this thing in the... And even you the get the pack and you're kind of going, how do I do this? Yeah, like, yeah, and exactly. It's so, and that, like we're so detached and we're thinking with our brain as opposed to any degree of instinct. Totally. Uh, and so you're counting them out painstakingly with bloody, you know... Um, you know, moist. You know, what do you call them? No, like little. You know, I was getting little ni- to try and get the spacing like right. Or like, not even like a little needle. That I put water on so I could pick the seeds up and drop all this mess about. Anyway, put the seeds in there, and then when I went back a couple of weeks later, and you see that these leaves have emerged, and then six weeks later, you're eating a salad. It's utterly miraculous, and and it was like, why is not this the first and maybe the only thing that we teach people at school? Because it's just the, the story of that moment when you see that stuff is the story of everything. And so it was an utter fascination from the moment that I got involved in this world. And those, so yeah, you know, part of it is the cause, but part of it is because it is the most fascinating thing. And, um, and really a society that's divorced from the miracle of, of, uh, of that and how those, these natural cycles work has got no future, is it? Yeah, and a society that sees itself separate from nature. That's ultimately like if you look at the definition of nature at the moment in the, the dictionary, it's like everything that exists outside of humans. So it's like we've literally reached a point where we don't see ourselves part of nature. So it just shows the degree of detachment. And at the, it's often forgotten that at the root of every economy is food. You know, modern day society, we celebrate, oh, it's, it's technology or it's farmer, it's something sexy or it's the new app or it's cryptocurrency. Yeah. But like without food, we don't exist. And modern day food system is fundamentally flawed nice <laughs> comment nasty sorry well, okay. I'm just trying to make it more of a conversation <laughs> sorry uh, uh, so, okay so, so roll back so, so you, you read that article and then what happened next what was the well what happened next was that my vegetable growing didn't go very well uh, in that the um, I didn't know what I was doing obviously so I I'd, I'd asked a neighbour who was um, uh, he's the yeah, that was the kind of family who, who in French give the word paysan uh, peasant such a noble connotations. I mean, they were full-on conventional chemical farmers growing maize, and their fields, you know, on an ecological level, were horrific. But then you have to understand that they'd grown up in a world of genuine hunger-level hardship, and then the guy came with the bags of chemicals and transformed everything, and you can totally see why they bought into what, what seemed to be a miracle, and they had done. But alongside that maize production, they still had the old courtyard with the ducks and the geese, and the vegetable patch, and they were, uh, they just basically never went to the supermarket. They were properly, properly independent people, um, f- could fix everything or whatever. Anyway, so I said to them, and did they grow their own stuff organically? They, for the they, home? They, well, not, not organically. So that's the problem. Oh, so wow. I said to him, I need to start growing some veg. What should I do? He said, Well, the first thing you got to do, which obviously I regretted it soon afterwards, but you got to plow up that little bit of your garden, and then we'll come and you know put the rotavator through it. And uh, and off you go. But then the difference is that at that point, he then starts using weed killer and I wasn't using weed killer. So it just became a jungle. You know, as soon as you create a, a hole, nature fills it. 
normally is what you don't want. Uh, and so it took like days to even find the tomatoes and stuff. And actually, uh, the breakthrough there came through first through a bloke called Elliot Coleman, who's a, who's a big veg grower in the States. And then where you were yesterday, Charles Dowlings. And I got into the kind of no-dig companion planting thing. And then I started to get quite a lot of abundance for very little work, to be totally honest. And then I applied for a license to sell veg at the market. This is in and France. At this, at this stage, were you still gigging, like, and this was your hobby in between gigs? Yeah, I was still gigging and get quite frustrated that, you know, you'd sort of get, you put your seedlings out and then go away for a weekend and it was really hot and they died. There's, there's a few, like, <coughs> knockbacks, you know. And then once we got the license for the... Where suddenly your hobby was becoming more than your hobby. You were resenting going to the gig. Yeah, was, My yeah. tomatoes are going to come <laughs> this weekend. No, exactly. And so then when once I got the license uh, to, to do the market, then... Um, I took on a part-time employee because the, the veg patch was quite big by then. You know, we had sort of three or four polytunnels and it was probably, I don't know, a couple of acres. You don't have two stuff. things, do you? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Amazing. And then how did it go? And then like, you started it? selling them in the market, like you yeah. filling up the van and going down. Yeah, yeah. So, then, I mean, the first time you do all this stuff, it's just everything's... I suppose one of the things, looking back on it now over the, over the past, whatever, you know, 17, 20 years, whatever it is, is that... I've done so many things for the first time. Doing things for the first time is hard, isn't it? So you're like you're there picking these lettuces, and Elliot Coleman in his book had a really good tip that like if you want to stand out of the market, um, actually probably not very eco friendly, is it? But have a little tray of ice underneath and keep your late morning lettuces on the tray of ice. So I was, I'd got all that going on, and you cutting these lettuces and thinking, well. I've no idea whether I need thirty or fifty or seventy. Like I don't want to, and I need to make sure I've got my scales and my bags and my flyers and my and then change and and then get to this market, which is basically the same people in this small French town have been doing this market since the dawn of time. Ooh, and, and you're the and, foreigner, and, and you turn the... up. And there's this whole juggle about where you get to put your table and. And then they have this mad, all the paella stands have this um, kind of big red wine breakfast because they've been cooking since four in the morning. So like when you have to arrive at seven, they, you know, the wine is flowing. And I mean, the, the atmosphere was magic. At 7 a.m.? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So the atmosphere was great. But then so I was very nervous to sell this stuff up. And uh, and then a lot of nice, um, mainly old ladies came, were coming to the stand and saying, oh, this is what veg used to taste like and all that. And it got off to a great start until... I don't know if it's week two or three or whatever it was. But I was also <clears throat> doing loose leaf salad, like mescaline type stuff. And so I was selling these bags and I sold this lady's bag. And then she came back and said, that's not 200 grams. And I said, well, it is. And I put it on the scales and she said, it's not. And she went to the next, put it on his thing and my scales weren't right. And I didn't, and, and so she, she came back and she said, show me your like calibration um, certificate. And I didn't realize, I just thought you bought some professional scales and you just took them out of the bag and plugged them in and that was it. But you have to calibrate them. And if you don't do that, it's like a criminal offense. And so I've been shortchanging people on the on the loose leaf salad. And she announced this to the whole market and all the market oh, officials came. No. It was terrific. It was terrific. I mean, even thinking about it now makes me feel slightly so sick. So you went from being <laughs> like this, you know, revolutionary to suddenly villain almost instantly. I was a villain. It was a long way back from there. Jeez. Building yeah. up trust. Yeah, building up trust, yes. As uh, as Boris can... <laughs> <laughs> did you go back? To, did you call to the old lady's house and drop around a box of veg? I did exactly that. Yeah. yeah, that's what I'd be doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
You got to go straight to the source. She had so many leaves, she would have been feeding them to guinea pigs, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, fair play to you. You don't have two things. And I think, like, one thing just before we get into, like, talking about wild, um, wildflower, wild farmed, is to talk about, like, starting things from the first time. Like, because nowadays society, we've got really specialist into things. And I think part of the joy in life is having the courage to try new things and to try to kind of push yourself out of that, into that place of discomfort like you saying there your first day going to the market didn't know how the hell it works put it on ice that you'd read in a book you're here in france you're the english man you're six foot nine so like you stand <laughs> out to start with and here you are selling your own homegrown organic lettuces in a society that typically celebrates conventional or chemical-based farming yeah i, mean, I think that's um who was i was talking to the other day about i think the the ability to tolerate discomfort uh is is a bit of a superpower actually and uh, I know I was talking to my son about it uh, and uh, we were talking about because he, he's into making tunes and DJ and that but he also following um, his father's he's, path yeah well he's, he's also really into playing the drums and um, and so you know with any instrument I've been through it you know you get the whole, the whole practice conversation and uh, and I totally get that like practicing was always hard uh, and it's a lot harder now because there's so many constant so bleeping distraction. distractions going on so <laughs> I totally understand all that but but basically I was just reflecting on the fact that um if you do that, and whether it's playing an instrument or whether it's running or whatever it is, but you go through a thing where you've got that moment where you you just feel like oh, I can't do this thing, I can't do this thing, and and and, and you're searching for a, an excuse to not do this thing, but you do the thing, and then you after having done the thing, you feel good about having done the thing, and if you do that ten thousand times, what whatever it is that that activity is, that muscle is is strengthened, and I think. Without, you know, I didn't obviously at the time I didn't think about any of this, but I think maybe having practiced quite hard on those instruments when I was younger, it meant that in those moments where everything is telling you like I, I can't get through the next hour, but having done that thing of of pushing yourself in and then getting the reward for having done something, even if it's a failure, you've done something, um, maybe helped some of the sort of you know lettuce on ice moments. So it's almost like waxing a groove that you've waxed the groove so many times that it's just you know you can postpone the payoff. You know you can kind of instead of yeah, getting the immediate. So. It's a but I think it's a learn learn behavior to a degree. Yeah, and it's yeah. one that's worth learning. I reckon. Same thing we've definitely got from sport that you know the way a lot of people hate running or movement, whereas we've done it so often that when I feel crap or don't have enough energy, I move which is counterintuitive, but that's what gives you the energy, you know? So it's, it, and you only know that because it's baked into your DNA over so many times. I feel crap. I feel exhausted. If I go for a nap, it's going to make me feel worse probably. But if I go for a run or do something, I'm probably going to feel better. So Yeah, but that's, yeah, that's a lot of training to, to embed that behavior in it. Mm. And yeah. similarly on the, the topic of like resilience, ultimately it's like resilience, I think what you're talking about. And like yesterday we were at Charles Dowding and we were walking down one of his his tunnels i think it was a tunnel and the tomato plants were looking really thirsty and he says yeah normally only water them once a week yeah they're pretty resilient and when you teach them to be more resilient they typically can handle a bit more stress and he said oh when people kind of water them every day they're kind of they turn into these little posh plants that need to be minded and looked <laughs> and very particular and he was just saying when you do you know not stress them in a negative way but not overly you know wrap them in cotton wool they do develop more resilience and as a result they can tolerate more challenges and more diversity and i think i think um certainly all the bits that i've read anyway that, that that's an important part of nu nutrient content content and flavor um is um because those those processes which happen when plants are slightly 
stressed that's you know that's what that's when they that. create more antioxidants because an antioxidant is typically a defense mechanism within the plant exactly so therefore you're probably hijacking the system and you know channeling it more towards better production which is yeah really interesting you're even thinking like um you know like nature to humans like when a human has been through more of these challenging more you know circumstances they build more character they build more experience more resilience more ability to be vulnerable and suddenly they have more diversity of a character suddenly it's like mm. they've more life experience anyway i'm going yeah. a bit philosophical I, i'm, I'm no, totally enjoying i'm totally enjoying this but we have to talk about the revolution yeah. so <laughs> let's let's like this is lovely but there's something so important here we need to talk about so can we talk about how you got into what you're doing now and what it is because it's phenomenal we just yeah. had a little tour and You've lit yeah. us both up like torches. <laughs> That's the cherries. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, well, I mean, what, the, there was, what happened in France was that the veg thing went on for a bit and it got uh, a bit bigger. And then um, I said to, to Joe, my wife, I said, look, you know, I want to do this the rest of my life. I want to join the people who are doing this at a certain scale to prove that there's a, there's a way of doing this on a, on, a, on a level which can kind of be a genuinely alternative food system. Hopelessly naive words at the time. I to but that's where anything good yeah. start not yeah. anything good but that's <laughs> up where some of the best stuff happens when someone that is necessarily related to it and just goes i have a dream yeah well it's a bit like that and so i said look i want to sell my publishing rights which is you know typically it's a musician's pension is the the publishing rights the songs that you've written i want to sell them to to uh, buy some land basically and um and that's the, pretty a wild thing to do like it was a ridiculous thing to do it was an insane thing to do um how old were you well, probably by the stage, you know, 35, 36. So you weren't devoid of life experience. You were, you had a yeah, lot of yeah. experience. So this wasn't like something you lightly considered. No, it was madness. Uh, and, and, and you had kids at this stage. Yeah, we had kids and, you know, we had a degree of, well, you know, more than a degree of financial comfort. We were a bit like, a bit like sort of footballers in the 90s. You know, we, we, we were, had our peak just before people got silly money. But nevertheless, like footballers in the 90s, we were fine, you know, uh, and, um, uh, and so uh, and so it was all madness. And, and buying fr um, farmland in France is good because it's a fifth of the price of, of, um, of um, sorry, not a fifth of the price, it's 20% it's, it's cheaper than it is in the UK. But that's because it's regulated. And so to, to get farmland is this whole process, which we won't go into now, but it was, it's a whole fascinating kind of story in its, in its own right. So it went on for a long time. So I had plenty of time to reconsider is what I'm saying. Yeah, but wow. we, 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 did this, we did this thing. We ended up with this farm. And the first three years there were an utter disaster. I mean, it was horrific. Uh, when you know, said we ended up with this farm, this isn't like a four-acre farm like we have. This is a very different farm. It's 110 it? hectares, so what, 350-acre farm. <laughs> uh, it's been farmed by From the same... three acres to 300 acres? Yeah, no, it's all ridiculous. Uh, and it's been farmed by the same family for a very long time. Um, and they, so they, amazing resourcefulness, you know, they, they built all the buildings, installed the irrigation system, the grain cleaners, the silos. But as a result, they were the only people who knew where the valve was, whether this was, whether that was... You know, it became rapidly clear that, you know, a lot of being a, a farmer in that sense is being a mechanic, of which I was had zero experience. Um, so I was just got this mad world of just a tsunami wave of information coming at me from the previous owner who was being very kind in telling me all this stuff, but it was utterly overwhelming. And this is all true French. It's all in French, but the language thing was there or thereabouts, apart from the sort of specialist agricultural terms, but, you know, they, they came pretty quick because he was pointing at them. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so between that and, like, going and, uh, you know, going to these, like, uh, agricultural equipment fairs where there's like 200 
um, you know, French farmers cutting the bread with their pen knives and talking about how many cylinders their tractors have got. I mean, it was it was pretty overwhelming. But for the, mo- the more fundamental thing was that it had grown uh, a lot of maize or cereals, but with a lot of maize conventionally for a very long time. And conventionally I, meaning chemical-based farming. As in the ke- chemical-based farming, yeah. And I had no idea. I mean, it's mad not to have tested it before I bought it, but I had no idea how bad the soil was. And the soil was uh, had a, a what, uh, what they call an organic matter level of 0.5%. All you need to know there is that kind of less than one is non-functional and it should be around six or seven. Wow. wow. Uh, so you had bought a complete dud. So not only a lack of experience, a lack of knowledge in this expertise, you bought a dud farm. Uh, yeah. and, and, ju- and just to clarify, it wasn't grown vegetables. You were going to grow cereals, to grow wheat. Yeah, so I wanted to, you know, in my hopeless naivety, I thought oh, I'm just going to start growing organic cereals. But of course, what happens is when cereals you, for bread. Well, I, I, at the time there was no thought of like making flour or baking or anything like that. I was just going to grow organic cereals. I was going to sell to organic cereal buyers. Uh, and um, uh, but what happens when you start trying to grow um, crops in soils that are de- as degraded as that, and you remove at one step all the all the chemicals that were being used previously, is that nature has these pioneer plants that are adapted to growing in these really low fertility conditions to basically save the day and to build uh, more nutrients to build in more soil. nutrients and, and create a succession which eventually will well, go back to woodland if we left it long enough you know but those pioneer plants are dock leaves thistles bindweed all the things that you find so hard to get rid of so you end up which is what i ended up in in this death spiral where where you're you're trying to keep these weeds down but every time you cultivate you're actually Invite more of them in. Yeah, well, you're 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 disturbing more seeds, but you're also letting oxygen into the soil. So the last bit of organic matter that you might be hanging on to is then being oxidized and becoming CO two rather than carbon in the soil. And so, because every time you cultivate, oxygen goes in and carbon. Cultivate meaning open it up. Yeah. So whether you're plowing or what disking or all these various tools that we've developed to you know to create a, a bed a seed bed, um, when uh, organic matter and carbon are pretty much interchangeable. And so when you cultivate... What does organic matter mean? So it's the percentage. So when people talk about how much carbon's in the soil... Um, carbon's good in the soil. Carbon's good in the soil and, and uh, or, or organic matter. So organic matter, or some people talk about... It'd be hummus. like compost almost. Like, or so it's, be- it's basically... Or, or like the hummus content of soil is what some other people talk about. And um, basically that is where everything happens it's where it's where soil biology functions it's where water gets retained it's the key to a functioning soil it's, it's like the microbiome of the soil it's the really. microbiome that's yeah. think of it like that you know and um and it's the sponge as well so it's what allows you to retain water and then release it slowly in a drought all the things that we require for functioning soils in which to, to grow our food um and we've lost vast amounts of this from our from our agricultural soil. So I think it's about a third of man-made CO2 emissions is simply carbon that we've taken out of the soil and put up in the air. From rotivating and, and digging and disking and, and we whatever. need to get it back down again. Um, and so, um, uh, yeah, so I was in these soils with very, very low levels of that, so very low functionality in the soils. And so things like dock leaves and thistles and stuff, they're around because they're really good at dealing with shit conditions and starting the whole process and uh, you know and building all up again and so then when you try and get rid of them so you go through your field with whatever implement you want to disturb the soil to temporarily it is very temporary Take <laughs> to, kill, to kill the thistles of course with all that di- disturbing in the soil you're letting more air in and so your carbon organic matter hummus whatever you want to call it's it, just it is oxidizing 
So your 0.5 level is is gone down to 0.4 and yeah, 0.3. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you know, you wouldn't measure it every week. It's yeah. only take a few years, but but you're on the wrong path. Wow. Uh, and uh, and I realised a few years in that um, it was a road to nowhere, and I was really skint because you start writing big checks in farming for the for the equipment and so on, and just devoid of like hope. It just absolutely run me into the ground. Jeez, so this is rock bottom. You you bought this three hundred and fifty acre farm in France with the idea of having an easy life, growing cereals. Ah, should be lovely. We'd be drinking wine at lunchtime, yeah. living the good life, bon vivre, whatever it is. And then lo and behold, you'd bought a dud, and life had a different plan for you. And ironically, if you were removed from capitalism, you'd let nature do its thing. That these thistles, these dandelions, these bindweeds, they're the nitrogen fixers. They're bringing more nutrients back to the soil, and over time, it would come back up to the five or six would I be right in thinking that over time but a yeah. lot of time okay a lot of time yeah, yeah okay. a lot of time um uh yeah so so that was rock bottom as you say uh, and uh, really um, we were having serious discussions about trying to sell it just wow. to cut our losses and and so on and and um it, I, it was at that point I found this book by a bloke called Albert Howard and Albert Howard uh, about 120 years ago now wrote a book called Jeez, ironically the revolutionary book is 120 years yeah, old yeah yeah well he wrote a book called An Agricultural Testament and the short version of that is that nature works because you have all these different plants and animals in the same place at the same time and if you split that up you take a beautiful solution and create all these problems that's the, the, the short read wow. uh, but there's, he, 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 there's a whole gang of them Albert Howard and Newman Turner and Rodale, who went on to found a, a big organic movement in the States in the sort of 30s and 40s, just at the beginning before the well, up until the beginning of the Second World War. They there was some there was by this stage there was chemicals being used already. These people had realized the consequences of that, and there's this whole gang of them who just worked it all out. And so, there's there's, there's, there's five or six books you can read from that period, and there's nothing to add. There's nothing to add, really. And these are cereal. They focused on cereals. No, all sorts of things. Horticulture. Like he, Albert Howe was in India, and they were doing everything from tea to vegetables to livestock to whatever. So there's this whole gang of people, and they'd realised that the future had to be biology based rather than chemical based. And then the Second World War came and literally blew it all out of the water. But um, but yeah, they were on it. So so he that book. I was like Jesus. This is like a kind of biblical moment. And I was like, right before I give up. I want to try applying what he says. So this that, is you're the great. bottom of the barrel. You're like, you know, you're sitting at the side of the street metaphorically and kind of going, oh my God, I'm like, what do I do? And then this book falls into your lap and you read it and go, right, I'm going to have one more go at this. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and, and, and key to that, and at that point I was vegetarian, which I said earlier, on, I'll come back to that. At that point I was veggie, but he's very insistent about the fact that animals need to be part of, uh, the food system of, of an agricultural system so having never owned a dog or a cat uh up until this point the last of the family silver went on getting a herd of cows oh my uh, god which was your, what was yeah. your wife like at that stage what did she think i think she was yeah she was just incredibly supportive and and uh, probably with a slight air of resignation i would have yeah. thought what a blessing though there's no like i don't think any person in that situation wouldn't be all in and then also have reservation like <laughs> yeah so the cows turned up and that was a uh, we could you know waffle on about the adventure that that was for a while but the important thing really was that sowing the fields down to pastures with lots of different plants in 
So basically doing what Albert Howard said. So that was companion planting. That instead of just planting wheat by itself, you were. Oh, this is before any of that okay. existed. So this was just pastures. So like basically just sowing it down to grass. What's a pa- oh, pasture? Is just grass. So yeah. it's grass. But when we when we say grass, it sometimes hides the fact that in there you've got all kinds of herbs and you've got legumes, which are the ones that fix the nitrogen out of the out of the uh, the atmosphere and put it in the soil. You have got grass as well. So you've got all these different plant families in there. Um, and um, and that was something that's that's really imp- that diversity is kind of critical for the success of uh, of regenerating using pastures, grass, whatever you want to call it, and and the mob grazing of animals, so grazing them in in a way like they used to move across the plains when they were herded by so predators. They poo and add their nutrients via their poo and their wee and yeah. chewing and the footprints gra- or their their what do you call it a hoof. hoof. Who've kind and of compressing it. Yeah. And there's all this little understood, um, well, it's little as far as I'm aware, uh, exchange of enzymes between actually the, um, the spit of the animals and, and, and the plants. Uh, one guy called Andre Voisin, a French bloke in the, in the 70s, he did this experiment where he mowed half a field and he grazed half a field for, for a number of years. And what he found was that there was a significant buildup of unwanted pests in the mown bit and absolutely none in the graze bit so there's all this these they're basically herbivores the clues in the title grass eaters and grass evolves together and and they work well together uh, and and so when we started doing that on that bit of the farm the speed of like visible at least recovery of nature both above ground and below ground was insane and how quick did it happen like you well, was three years you were nearly broken and quitting, like, was it kind of when the cattle came in? Was it kind of a few years before you got it? No, going? Within, within a within a season, within a year, you could see it just felt and it smelt different. Even it just was like the life was back, you know, and you could just hear it. So there was um, a touch of hope. There was a touch of hope, and but not that much. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a touch of hope. But parallel to that, I've been doing all these other experiments, which you don't need to sort of go into details of, but about how you can basically grow cereals without cultivating or minimizing how much you cultivate or mess about with the soil but without using what most people who do low cultivation cereal growing they're using weed killers glyphosate roundup whatever you want to call it herbicides and the thing with herbicides you know the clues in the side bit isn't it as in suicide if you're trying to bring life back into a system then herbicides fungicides pesticides are all death good way of thinking i've never heard that's so simple yeah, yeah. That's speak, you're speaking our terms yeah. <laughs> and so I didn't want to use that I, I was certified organic anyway but I had no interest in using any of those chemicals that end inside uh, and so I was doing all these other cropping experiments and, and they it doesn't matter about the details but they were working quite well they took a lot of faffing about but it was working quite well but the key moment that brought us back to what you were saying about wheat and pasture at the same time is that um, when, when it came to the point where the, with the grasses the pastures whatever you want to call them They'd done some work in building the soil up. And at that point, the idea as a farmer is that then you then plough that and you sort of cash in the fertility that you built up with the grasses and the cows to grow your profitable wheat crop or whatever. And then you maybe do that twice and then you go back down to grass again. That's the sort of... The that's better a, end, that's the, the standard model that you're well, almost... Yeah, the better end of the standard model. Because like, actually, if you do that, then you can kind of maintain some kind of equilibrium. And that's kind of th- three to four year cycle, three years. Yeah, and that got replaced by chemicals, of course, where we've maintained no equilibrium whatsoever, which has got us to the state that we're in now. But prior to that, and the and the and the you know good organic farmers out there are still in inversions of this cycle. But when it came to doing that, there's another whole chapter whereby we ended up farming with horses and farming with horses using GPS, which I think might be a world first. 
Um, but we can we can talk about that if you want. We can talk about any of these bits if you want. But we ended up farming with horses. Naturally, uh, the point where I was meant to be plowing up these grasses, I just really didn't want to do it because they were just full of life. And uh, this fragile soil. Plowing up means kind of just ripping it up, like well, ripping plowing the soil. Is specifically t taking the top bit and turning it over and putting it upside down, to, to, and that's to kill the plants that are there, basically, and to make way for the crop that you want to put in. Yeah. Uh, and, and it temporarily builds up and releases carbon, the carbon obviously, obviously releases all oh, yeah, the carbon yeah. yeah it does it does uh, but the the idea would be that if you're doing that kind of well then there's some kind of equilibrium between what you gain and what you lose and certainly you know the, there's brilliant organic farmers in the UK like Helen Browning and Patrick Holden these people have been doing it for decades this versions of this system but using lots of animals and grasses and so there's lots of fertility going in and they maintain a kind of equilibrium but the thing is that i didn't i couldn't maintain because i was right at the bottom i needed to go up not you know need to regenerate rather than sustain uh, and and we had the, the horses there and plowing with horses is possible because the amish people who i went to visit in pennsylvania to learn about horse drawn farming from they all do it um but um it's laborious and it's long and i just didn't want to do it uh, and um and so um i thought why don't we ultimately wheat is a grass Wheat was found growing by mankind or humankind, as we probably say, uh, in the pastures of the Fertile Crescent, um, over you know wherever that is in by the Nile somewhere. Yeah, uh, and and so could we not just grow them in pastures again? That was my idea, and so that led to a, a series of experiments about trying to do that, which didn't go very well. Uh, and what made them go better was. Um, was bringing back again a, a thing which is total standard practice, which is the idea that you sow your winter cereals, because oh, I should probably clarify that wheat is generally sown in September. It goes over winter, and it gets harvested the following August. There are exceptions to that. So there's a whole year cycle almost. So there's some process that the cold has some impact into, like a... Yeah, yeah. the posh word is vernalization, but basically it means that the cloud... The plant needs to get cold. The plant gets cold, and that's its trigger to go into the seed-making bit. Okay. And uh, there are some crops that are planted in the spring, but it doesn't matter for now. But the um, but yeah, so it goes over winter. And in the old days, the 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 the, the roving herds of sheep or whatever um, would come down from the hills, you know, where food was getting a bit scarce, and they would do the farmers a favour by grazing all of their winter crops because these are all just grasses, remember. So a bit like when you cut your lawn, it does them a load of good to get grazed and it gets rid of disease and it makes them spread out more. And that was a totally standard procedure until the sort of chemical. And, and what that was essentially is so you plant the wheat in September and then it, it hasn't properly come up really. It's still in the ground. And no, then, it comes up. It comes it? up. And then, and then when it's, I don't know, five inches tall or something like that, four or five inches tall, you graze it all right back so down. So cattle come and wow. eat it. They poo all over it. There's loads of enzymes and some symbiotic relationship. And then it's almost as if your wheat is gone again. And, yeah. and then come spring, it, it shoots back. up. And it's, it's quite unnerving when you do it for the first time. Because, you know, you, they sort of, it's generally a bit damp. Animals come out. It looks like you're throwing a festival in your wheat field. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that was that was transformational. So that meant that meant that we got this sort of system going because that knocked the the grasses back because they're they're eating everything the wheat and the grasses. But because the wheat is an annual plant and these other ones are perennial plants, as in multi-year plants, so the the wheat just got ahead and stayed ahead. So it stayed above the above the, the grass. The, the grass got the life. Yeah. 
So that so we got that going, and then we were faced with the thing which coming into farming from the outside is just bizarre that you've got these fields that are full of like life and nature and whatnot, and um, and you've got these nutrient dense grains, and you want to sell them. But then the grain. So the market, farm was working. You got there was actual crops so, coming and that were in, good. And was yeah. there income at this? There was enough to kind of cover the costs. Well, there should have been if I could get a fair price for it. So what I was getting was s- smaller yields of uh, better quality grain, clearly grown in a better ecosystem than a toxic monoculture. But when you go and sell them, uh, the grain market places no value on how many insects you've killed how many watercourses you've polluted, how much soil of your soil you've allowed to erode into the river, uh, your nutrient density of your food places no value on any of that at all. The only measure is tons, which when you step back from that is a mad uh, foundational point for a food system. Wow. And so faced with that reality, um, uh, I had to add value because if I just sold my grain and it joined the bloke, next door's grain who's in a, in a monoculture throwing loads of chemicals at it and getting you know twice as much i can't make a living from that hmm. so i had to turn it into flour move up the so value you, ladder oh, the value ladder exactly so you'd once again go right here we go love you up for this next step yeah so it's really that again you really are a bit of a master of discomfort and leaning into oh, that uncertainty to, definitely to a fault over these last 15 years but um so yeah so it's just kind of economic necessity really so whole fiasco around trying to find a mill and then got this mill installed and then so you've got a mill you bought a mill you got a mill and got the mill installed and it's that's the whole thing in itself but no sooner i'd done that than this um than this this uh chap i went to meet he was a paysan boulanger which is like a farmer baker there's still a bit of a culture in france of some farmers who who mill and bake certainly in a bit of france where i was that was still quite a thing and he was a very very inspiring man and i went to see him and he was like what mill have you got and I said, I've got such and such a mill. And he said, you need to change it. And you just and bought I said, it? I just bought it. Like, How big was it? I'm joking. Uh, about the size of this table. So, so it was a real mill. It wasn't like a big little, old stone mill. Yeah, it was a big old stone mill. But it turns out that it was made using reconstituted stones, a kind of fake stone. And he said, um, you, you, you've got to have granite stones. And you've got to have the right mechanism. And he said, you've got to change your mill, basically. And, and, you had, and, you and when you'd gone on that investment and someone tells you that, it's just be like, ah. No, yeah, I just, yeah, where's the nearest bridge? Yeah. Um, so anyway, I managed to sell the mill. And then I got, I got the type of mill that he said. And I have to say, I was very skeptical, but the, the difference in the flour was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. So then I went off, you know, with my flour in a bag, you know, taste delicious, farmed by horses. So I had all the pictures of how we'd done it with horses and everything else. And I'm absolutely convinced it was going to fly off the shelves. And then with one noble exception, uh, no one else wanted to buy it. Was and that because it, it was more expensive or what was uh, it? Not even. No, it, was, it was because... Um, Englishman in France. No, I don't think it was that. I think it was that the, the bakeries that, that I was taking it to, they were making uh, high-gluten baguettes in a you know a very fixed process and and so me coming along saying well maybe forget the yeast and do a bit of a sourdough fermentation not, not interested not interested well it was like the bakery was doing what you know conventional or chemical farm was doing exactly. was the equivalent the of that was being done well in the, the system has been built to fit yeah you know so you end up with the you know the, the uh, baking system which fits the, the grains that's being fed into it you know so, so lo and behold you go okay i don't fit in this system i'm gonna have to build my own system 
well, I just well again, it was by this stage it was fairly economically desperate, so it was like right, well, uh, we need to make bread then. Uh, uh, and uh, so, Joe was going, come on, Andy, come <laughs> on, man. but just but, go back to making music. But if you're economically desperate, like you know, that's still such a brave move to go because starting a bakery isn't cheap. Like, no, it's not cheap, and that's and that's where Ed, who who um, who went on to. Uh, be one of the co-founders in Wild Farm, which is all where all this is heading. Is this Ed Groove Armada? No, the, uh, Tom, it's Tom Groove Armada. Ed is with George, who you've been Ed with. Ed and George, yeah, they, and George. they went dead around eight years ago to you. Yeah, so they're, they're the sort of Wild Farm co-founders. And it was Ed who who um, got me sorted with the with the bakery. He, he lent me the money to sort that out. Good man, Ed. Good man. Big Thanks, shout Ed. out to Ed. Thanks, Thanks Ed. Ed. Yeah, and indeed. So that, that sort, of, um, sort of allowed us to do that. But yeah, I mean, it was... Uh, I think also there's a bit of it like, you know, you're, you're rowing across the river and you've been rowing and, and, and there comes a point where the far bank seems nearer than the bank you've left and you just got to keep going. Um, although that far bank did keep retreating. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so we started making the bread and uh, yeah, that didn't go so well as you can imagine, got better. And this is probably your learning how to bake sourdough, which is again, unconventional within a system in France where it's typically yeast. It's very almost regulated in France there's quite a you know a baguette can only be such amount isn't that true yeah, in France no, and here you are trying to bake traditional sourdough methods with your own grain and and can I ask another question where were you in France it was uh, about an hour from Toulouse so it's quite down near the oh, yeah, 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 lovely, lovely. Oof, nice yeah hot though, but yeah nice um, yeah so the bread thing I mean it, it took a long time to, to crack that one but eventually ended up with you know loaves that look like loaves <laughs> and, and they and they they were they were really tasty actually and and so then I was when I was back off to the shops like this time surely you know and of course the first thing they say when you go in these shops is that we've already got a bread supply well, of course they have you know um, and so I said well look you know can you just take a couple uh, and so I spent quite a long time doing quite a lot of miles literally dropping off one or two loaves in these shops but then really quite quickly actually um and we were selling some in the farmyard as well but word spread you know because it was really nice tasting bread and, and a lot of people who'd given up eating bread because they couldn't digest it properly they were they were eating this bread going this feels great and you know so word spread and um and the production started to go up a bit um and my original plan had just been to do the paysan boulanger which is the farmer baker model and just keep, kind of keep farming and do one bake a week or something like that but then quite quickly it was like actually we need to do some more baking here and so uh, we put the word out and, and got some actual proper bakers in. Um, not you. Not me, uh, who knew what they were doing. Uh, and so we could um, start making bread. So then that, that sort of ended up being a farm shop that was quite busy and we were doing markets and we started making bread for the schools and the kids would come for the schools. The kids from the schools would come to the farm and see where their, where their bread came from. And that's where you put the photo of you at Glastonbury and you with the horses. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, get people's attention, you know. And um, and yeah, I just used to, yeah, because it's, it's just quite when you've been to the when you DJed at the private party on the on the ridiculous super yacht. And I'm not saying it's not fun. Of course, it's fun. It's a laugh, you know. But you get on there, and a lot of people in that world are just trapped in the same loop. Uh, as someone who's quite skinned and wants a new pair of trainers and thinks that new pair of trainers is going to bring them happiness. It's just that the people on the yacht want a second jet or a third jet or a fourth house or a fifth house, you know, but it's all, every, just a version of the same lead. Yeah. And then you come back from that and I, you know, see the neighbor over the fence who helped me with the veg patch. He hasn't even got a passport. And he's one of the most contented people that I've ever met. 
and he says to me, "There's more things to see in the in the five miles around my farm than I've got time to see in my lifetime." Wow, so, you know, these things resonate. I'm just very privileged to be able to see both sides of the coin. Um, so yeah, the kids would come, come to the farm, and it was all you know, like a, we started planting trees and hedges, and it was a. At this stage, it was working. It was working, and, and Joe was, nice. was actually your wife was kind of more like. Good job, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> no, she was always, she always, she's always got my back, to be honest. But it was a, a, a temporary moment of relief before all this latest madness started. Temporary but, moment uh, of relief. Yeah. <laughs> One sunny, su- sunny summer, like that type of thing. Well, it would, pretty much it was exactly that, yeah. You don't really like steady state, do you? Well, I, I could do with a bit of it now, to be honest. But um, but yeah, so well, the, the reason why we went on to, to this is is that you kind of zoom out from this, from this farm and... Uh, the most of the countryside around there is a bit ahead of the curve in terms of soil erosion compared to here because the climate's a bit harsher and because I suspect that geologically there's probably a bit less soil to start with. I don't know about that, but I'll guess so. And um, and it's just, you're looking at like real-time desertification in, in a lot of the farmland down there. Like currently now? Yeah, like now. Then? Yeah, wow. not like some future point. Now. So from chemical Proper. erosion, they're probably down at, as you were saying, 0. 0.5 or so, below in terms of yeah, so hummus you, or... You have organic masses. So the organic masses has been lost, so you can't retain moisture. Actually, physically, so much soil has been lost that you, you, you in lots of places, you can see the bedrock, like the rock layer on which the soil used to sit. Uh, it's dramatic, like it's really, really dramatic. Because uh, uh, that's like, say, I think it was the World Health Organization or some body like that, excuse me, I'm probably getting this wrong, but saying that we've approximately 60 years left the top soil. It was the UN, yeah. Yeah. 60 years, and obviously that was 10 years ago. So yeah. this but is that a, was negated. That was, you know, you could, I don't know, who knows. The thing with those statements is that they're obviously, it's a huge generalization. Yeah. And it will, and it will depend uh massively from farm to farm from field to field even you know but the point is that um long before you get to the last 30 the shit's going to hit the fan you know and it's indisputable that the state of our agricultural soils are are dire uh, that we have lost a lot of the kind of functioning uh layer of the soil which is don't forget that it's the only thing on the planet that can turn death into life and one of the things i used to say to the kids at the farm if you, we go like go and see a fallen tree, you could put all of the computers in the world, all of them, around that fallen tree for as long as you want, and it's still not going to turn into daffodils or grass or an apple tree or a human or a cat or anything. It's only that little bit of soil which we've so abused that can do that, and without that, there's nothing. What an incredible way of looking at things, turning death into life. Yeah, but it is the only thing that can do that, you know. Yeah. And so we abuse it at our peril, uh, and. um uh, and so the situation around the farm in France, you know, as it is in lots of places, is is pretty bleak. And the obstacles to change for incredibly hardworking, resourceful, resilient farmers are huge. And they've been financially squeezed like nurses. You know, we just squeeze and squeeze and squeeze and squeeze until we just think, well, there's enough people with a big heart that they'll carry on. And and we've done exactly the same thing to to, to farmers. Uh, and so they've got cultural barriers to change, like what does actual a successfully farm field look like? And we've created a whole new narrative about what that is, and it's one plant, full stop, nothing else. As in wheat. Yeah, as in wheat, or oats, or rye, or maize, or Some soy. Culture. And the success is built on chemicals coming in. and Yeah, and, and, and we've got them into this whole sort of cultural financial trap, basically. And so the wild farm thing was... Yeah, this is great, but like we need to. If the whole countryside could be rearranged and all land carved up, and it became these little farms with their independent bakeries and cider presses and all this kind of stuff, it'd be amazing. 
but it's not going to happen and we haven't got we haven't got enough ecological road left we're just running out of time and so like within and, the, and you would come to this you would come to this realization that okay we've we've fixed our own plot like we've somehow uh, like weathered this storm and managed to kind of move up the value ladder and create a postage size stamp of a model of that actually works and you at this point you'd realize that all around you is you can't change all that unless the system changes Exactly, and I've been I've been you know privileged in that, as, uh, alongside setting the bakeries and stuff. I was taking a lot of risks in trying to work out how to grow things, and I had two big advantages there. One is I had no um, parental figures or grandfather figures saying what are you doing. You don't. You know, there's no way we're doing that here. The neighbours are going to think we've gone mad. You know, so I had none of that cultural baggage, and I could you know go and play some records and bail myself out when it went wrong. You know, and, and so I was very lucky in that. It just, I mean, you say it's an absolute mad way to spend your money. That's a whole other story. But a perfect but, example of the like, you know, the most creative parts in nature are at the at the boundaries. And here you were bringing the boundary of music, of of a whole different paradigm on life to farming. And it was probably only due to that that you were less inhibited by the you know conventional constraints of farming. Yeah. So it had huge disadvantages in that you know I didn't know how to weld very well, and I, I didn't know how to weld at all. And um, when the tractor broke, I was pretty shit at fixing it and um, all kinds of, you know, downsides to not having had a farming background. But I think in this particular instance of what happened to me, they were probably outweighed by me coming in from such a weird angle and everything. Um, and so, yeah, the wild farm thing was like, right, we need to find a way of of, uh, of speeding things up here as best we can. And it seemed to us that that broke down into two camps, basically. It was one is how can we help farmers move towards biodiverse cropping systems because basically the monocultures we were talking about in the field just now but the monoculture is something that in other words one plant in one place let's just get rid of the technical terms but like one plant in one place over what is the case now you know hundreds of thousands of acres sometimes if you go out in the you know the midwest in america is something that never ever ever exists in nature you will never see a one plant in one place it's just not what happens and so as soon as you've got that you're trying to defend the indefensible and and if you're um, farming with chemicals, you just use whatever you've got in your toolkit to keep that show on the road. And if you're farming without chemicals, you'll do quite a lot of cultivations to keep that show on the road. But the monoculture, to my mind, is the problem. Uh, and um, uh, and so if we just start growing, it's just basic, really. There's nothing new. But if we just start growing um, plants together in the same way that I'm sure Charles Dowding was, and, and you know, companion planting and vegetable growing is much more of a thing companion planting and cereal growing is much less of a thing but there's no reason why it can't be a thing and so if we can help farmers with biodiverse farming solutions on the one hand and then buy that grain off them at a price which is high enough for them to risk making a change or, or the perceived risk in my mind but never whatever it is perceived so it's almost like giving them a safety net so yeah, it's almost like net. that listen if you grow this grain you'll get a premium price for it yeah if you grow the grain in this way yeah we'll give you a premium price and so they'll take that risk. And then that can only work if you've got customers for the flour that comes after that's it's, been milled. It's ballsy. Like there's such courage to try to try to evoke a systemic change. Yeah, but I just think if we if we if you know this this revolution isn't coming from the top. 
No, and that's why so, I have okay, such so, admiration. So you created your own system in your own little microclimate, and then you realized, oh, okay, now we've made it to America. Now we need to go row all the way back to Australia and fix the whole system. <laughs> so that that you'd reached that point. Reached that, but I know, you know whether we'll fix the whole system or not. I don't know. And there, and there are lots of other people, you know, trying to crack this nut in different ways, and we've all got to pull together on this. You know, um, but it's the Rebel Alliance, as we were saying yeah, before. Yeah. And um, Avengers Assemble. Uh, exactly, uh, and but so yeah, so. But part of the, the Rebel Alliance bit, and certainly for our thing to work, uh, it, we, we had to create activist consumers. And, and actually, it's a really empowering message, isn't it, when you say to people that if you're worried about biodiversity loss in whatever way, or if you're worried about climate change in whatever way, your single greatest point of agency you've got on all of that is your food choices. And actually, by buying this pizza rather than that pizza, you've changed the game and you're part of the solution. Uh, and that's a that's a that's a really nice thing to be able to explain to people because we're so divorced, as we were saying at the beginning, from from everything that we don't realise that it's when we sit down to eat that we inter interact with the natural world. Yeah, it's food is at the intersection of all. It's so easy to feel disenfranchised, disempowered, you know, in modern day life. But literally, our food choices, politics starts on the plate. That's what we'll often say. Yeah, no, it's exactly that. So it's it's you know. If um, if you if you buy the pizza that's been grown from the flour that's grown from farmers in our farming community, you know and I'm making these numbers up. But you know, for every five thousand pizzas, you got two acres that used to look, look like a quite barren, chemical-ridden um, wasteland, pretty much, and it's now full of biodiversity. It's very very direct. Those and pizzas in, have an effect. And in terms of uh, like, just to clarify, the biodiversity really it's in terms of. It like there's species extinction happening across the planet. There's insect extinction. There's like the the reduction of species of aliveness of this planet is been reducing over the last fifty years. And a huge factor of that is due due to monocropping and the reduction of the soil health, and therefore the plant health, and therefore the the diversity of plants, and therefore the insects, and therefore the animals, and so yeah. on and so everything forth. starts with everything starts with the with the insects, doesn't it? And and um, uh, and you know, I mean, the other the other week, super basic, quite fun to do at home. But um, if you get some yellow bowls, put about an inch of water in, and a couple of drops of fairy liquid or whatever washing up liquid you've got, uh, and that's to break the surface tension of the water. So whatever insects go in there will stay in there. Um, and um, so the other week, I got uh, three yellow bowls and put one in a in a hedgerow, one in a, um, a monoculture. Uh, wheat field just over the hedge in the neighbor's farm and one in the field where we were before where um we're using that technique of like growing the wheat in in the pasture that where we in where companion we, planting yeah all that so we put the three bowls out and obviously i'm not i've only done this once so it needs repeating and it's not scientific but it was just but it's of, indicative but it's instinctive also that if you take the the one from the hedgerow uh there was a there was a very wide diversity of insects in there, including a big sort of carob beetle, and there were loads of spiders and all kinds of other things in between. Uh, in the monoculture field, there was only flies, and almost a plague of them, like lots of flies, but only flies. And in, and in the field where we were standing just now, um, it wasn't as good as the hedgerow, but there was a, uh, a wide diversity of things, and, and very interestingly, spiders again. And I did a fourth one, which was in a field uh, just opposite where we were, 
where there's kind of control field where I'm growing organically, but uh, we in a monoculture. So it, it's um, there's no chemicals in there, but it is just wheat plants. And in that field, there wasn't a lot of anything. Though, but it's kind of interesting. There wasn't a plague of flies either. There was a couple of flies, uh, and there was a couple of other bits and pieces, but there were no spiders. And I, I've been ever since I've been mean to look up whether spy, spiders are sort of indicators of flourishing. By, by, it's by amazing like, like the amount. It's amazing the amount of like intuition and following the breadcrumbs you have to do, and like it's a, it's amazing. But instinctively, your trust though. and faith is incredible. <laughs> like it really is. But we, you, you walk out of those fields and it feels, you know, biodiverse environments just feel nicer to us because I guess that's what we evolved in. Yeah, totally agree. So Wild Farm, just so we really break it down and kind of let people know what you're trying to achieve here and how broad it is. Can you really spell it out because like since we came here like there's like a big room we had 100 farmers here during the summer to try to tell them what regenerative farming is and to try them to have the courage and almost to support them so that they can grow similar practice there's this really cool kind of like meeting room that we saw and it's like it's so rebel alliance like it's it's <laughs> phenomenal and even just the center, out, the center for the revolution even like. going out to see the fields and to see that you were actually planting wheat directly in grass. So there's grass grown up the middle of wheat, which is so unconventional. But when you spell it out, it's like, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, why, why, why aren't people doing this? Yeah, well, there's various things going on here. And I say, I've not been here very long, so the fields are by no means in... So in, we're here in England the, now. You moved from France back yeah, to so, England. Yeah, so yeah, we forgot that we missed that whole bit out. Ah, but that's, we? you know... We, yeah, we <laughs> missed that whole bit out. Well, that, that's just sort of a, a detail. But uh, as the wild farm thing started to sort of gather a bit of pace... Uh, COVID made the world a lot bigger. There was a there was it be, kind of became clear that it would be great if we had a wild farm farm back in the in the UK, and um, uh, you know the price of farmland is insane. There's no way I could ever consider buying a farm in the in the UK. And the National Trust has a few farms that come up for rent, and I heard from a friend that this one was available. So without any real expectation of anything i threw my hat in the ring but lots of lots of people put their hat in the ring i heard there was three thousand applicants i don't know what the number was but it was a lot of people so the open day was it was busy uh and um uh, and yeah so we ended up getting the lease called quite last minute so we ended up leaving the house in france with, with a couple of suitcases and a cat basically and and this is you and your two kids your wife yeah who'd all grown up in, your kids had all grown up in france they, that's all they'd ever known yeah and how long ago was this this is seven or eight months ago something <laughs> <laughs> but, but you'd done groundwork before that you'd start like the you know with the bakery here yeah so the wildfire thing i've been building and i've been coming and going and zoom calls and all that kind of thing and we've been doing some trials in a in a farm down in in surrey which didn't go too well but they were quite educational um and uh and so yeah so we end, so what's going on here is that um with the caveat the fact that i arrived last autumn and there's a whole load of problem with the machinery so it was all a bit hectic and last minute and not as it should be but there's various ways uh, um, just uh, of bringing biodiversity back in the fields. And one of that is the first field we saw, which is just growing two plants at once. In that case, it was it was wheat and beans. Uh, there's the more kind of extreme end. And which that is, the, the beans are nitrogen fixing, so they're, they're bringing fixing, that into yeah. the soil and then it gives more nutrients and, for you know, them. And, and, and also just the way the field looks is, you know, the job of farmers, uh, well, soil-wise at least, is to harvest sunlight. And so by having this diversity of plants, you've got a better solar panel. Um, and um, uh, you just It's an amazing way of thinking about it. 
But that, so then, then the more the fringe end is is the field where um, you know trying to put the wheat straight into the the pastures. That's what I was doing in France, and um, you know you have to get things right for that to work. But that's a quite an exciting angle. And then what I think you're going to pop up and see afterwards, but trying to get more diversity into the mixture. So can we go three things at the same time, four things at the same time? Because obviously the more plants, the more resilient, the more diversity. And exactly. There's a br- the better a brilliant, nutrient for the soil. There's a brilliant woman called Dr. Christine Jones who does a very eloquent explanation of why four, four plant families or more is when the magic happens. Um, so you can maybe... Polly. What's it, Christine? Dr. Christine Jones. She's an amazing woman. Amazing one. Anyway, so there's, so there's, there's the different things going on in the fields, and as you say, we, we we well, Adrian, my mate, is incredible at like whether it's making this table out of an old grain cleaner or or turning these old barns into uh, a restaurant for hundred people last week, effectively in a conference centre in the old grain cleaning uh, barn. So we've been hosting farmers, and we've had some a whole range of like really brilliant farmers who are already, you know, a long way down the regenerative road doing fascinating things um, that are interested in what we're doing, cooperating, uh, all down to farmers who are growing conventionally at the minute, but are interested in doing something different, you know, and and, and um, the testimonials that we're starting to get from those people, uh, we, you know, on our WhatsApp group, we have knowledge sharing thing with the farmers and you get things like, you know, I'd never thought of growing that herbicides and fungicides before this crop is blowing my mind. That's the one I always repeat because I just love that when that came through. It's just amazing. And so we're hosting those. Last week we were hosting a hundred or so bakers. Um, so the people who are using our flour or thinking about using our flour or using some other flour, whatever. And they're using the flour from France. Like, is this flour from France or is this flour from the UK? I know. So now we've got 42 farms um, as part of the wild farm growing community. Uh, and and so, so these are independent farmers who totally align to the values and... So these are these are very, a mixture of farmers, and some of them are, as I say, like, you know, already doing amazing regenerative type things, but they're interested in the particular growing techniques that we've been working on and so they've joined our community to be part of this knowledge sharing thing and um, the majority of them actually are are, uh, currently conventional farmers and we said to them look um, here's this support group here are these ideas come and have a look in the field and why don't you just do 100 acres like that Uh, and and lots of them are And 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 all that is happening because people are choosing to use the flour at the other end, which is why it's also critical that bakers come here and it's critical all the work we do in schools and talking to consumers about... So it's a full value ladder. You're really trying to educate. Like it's... This is not consumers. the easy road. This is the really challenging road that... Well, you're trying to educate not only the soil and the plant and the farmer, then it's the baker and it's, you know, it's the full... It's the full thing. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a... You know, in the same world, a lot of, uh, you know, government would be... Uh, doing the sort of educational work of saying to people, you know, your food choices are of critical importance and they will be supporting uh, farmers to em- embrace change, but it's not really happening. Well, it's not happening, is it? And so you've just got to find another way of doing it. And actually, what's nice about this model is that it's full on and there's a lot of spinning plates and it's been a pretty sleepless few years, but... Um, but actually, you can drive it at your own pace. So the other the other thing that we've been doing a lot of recently is is hosting the procurement departments of big high street chains because um, this is about making food grown from this system for everyone, not just like sourdough loaves for you know people who could afford them. And I've sold a few of those and eaten a few of those, so I count myself in that. But it's not what this is about. This is about high street food, uh, and also if it becomes high street food, of course, then the other opposite is true. 
that we can convert huge swathes of the countryside into biodiverse arable environments. So, you know, the two go hand in hand. And so we're spending a lot of time in the in the in the Rebel Alliance conference centre up there that you saw the old barn that was full of shit about three months ago. But um with these procurement departments, just again, just going into the field saying this is why how food is grown matters. Uh and actually trying to initiate a conversation with some of those companies saying at the moment you've got an environmental kind of offsetting department that might be investing in theoretical mangrove swamp tokens on the other side of the world you know well what about you take some of that money and you pay a bit more for your ingredients and that means that growers can grow things in a way where you get all those environmental benefits here where your shops are where your family lives where where your your friends live yeah uh, where your children go to school and yeah so on exactly and so, forth. and so uh these are big conversations and you know this obviously goes far beyond wild farm it's just trying to change the dynamic of the of the procurement department of these of these companies so yeah we're definitely if we go down we'll have gone down trying <laughs> it is it, like the extent of what you're trying to do takes a while to get your head around because it's like without knowing the journey you don't understand like the extent of really that ultimately it's down to nature and helping nature to thrive, that we are in a state now where the planet is really struggling. You know, nature is struggling. Soils, soils, animals, everything. And this is a key part of the solution, really. It's a critical part of the solution because I, I can't remember the exact number, but it's something like, uh, I can't remember the exact number of, of arable acres in the UK, but it's massive. It's millions and millions and millions. Um. Uh, and uh, and so if we can imagine those moving from being monocultures to biodiverse polycultures, I mean, the consequences of that, not just for our ecosystems, but for our nutrition, for, um, let's not forget as well that by putting more of that um, carbon and soil biology back in place where it should be, that's our best protection against flooding. Let's not forget too that like when we're in a climate where we get these very long hot periods followed by torrential rain rather than the kind of sunshine and showers which it used to be, um, that unless we can store that rain when it falls, um, we're in real, real, real trouble. And the thing that stores the rain is the organic matter in the soil. Without that, you get downstream flooding and you get crops that fail. So it is of existential importance. And yet, the solutions are dead simple. We don't need any inventions. Uh, we don't need any, any miraculous technology. The only miraculous technology that we need is, is the leaf. And that's been around for a while, and it's tried and tested, and we just got to keep the soil covered in them. Hey, that's beautiful. It's, about the getting mes- it's really about getting the message out to more people and getting more people part of the... And even people don't realise that, like I remember reading a great book, I think it was called The Third Plate or something. Oh and yeah, Dan Barber. Yeah, it was brilliant, where he spoke about how soil quality is linked to economic prosperity and to modern day urbanites, which we are, you don't think of that. You don't think that like, and he, he quoted some research where they were shown as the topsoil started eroding, people's level of education started decreasing, people's financial situation started decreasing. And, and maybe it's, maybe it's just partly some microbial link to that, that as their soil erodes, their food quality erodes, their microbiome corrodes, and therefore, I don't know. Well, it is, I mean, the soil, you know, let's, let's, the, the soil is the microbiome of the plant and it's the digestive tract of the plant. So unless that's functioning properly, the digestive tract of the plant isn't functioning properly, and so it's nutritionally poor. And it's, it's exactly the same as ours, 
uh, and actually the two microbiomes have got a lot in common. Um, and uh, that guy, Albert Howard, that I mentioned, one of the things in his book is that he looked at the um, the call-up records, and I can't remember if it's the First World War or the Second World War, I suspect it's the Second World War in the States, and he did a graph of number of recruits rejected on medical grounds and soil quality by region. And they're just two parallel lines. Oh, my God. Yeah. So there's there's absolutely no doubt that it's been established for well, thousands of years that um, uh, any public health policy which doesn't start with the soil is not worth the paper it's written on. So, so, so what are what are things what are things anyone listening here as an individual can do? Like, what type of food should people be buying? How can people who are listening kind of go right? I'm totally aligned with this. I really want to be part of this solution as a consumer. Andy, I'm in your team. I'm in oh, your we're, boat. We're part of the alliance. <laughs> what can we do? Well, it's you know, for the vast majority of a largely urban population, it's food choice, isn't it? And um, you know, if you're lucky enough to um, live near Charles Dowding or one of the many farms that are, uh, you know, growing in interesting ways, favoring biodiversity, you know, milling on site or whatever, you know, growing vegetables in that way, whatever it is, and you can go actually make the effort to go and get your stuff from them and support them, then fantastic. Our job as wild farmed is to, is, um, to say for a, for a majority of urban population who don't, generally live near people doing those things we're just trying to get this uh, flower in enough places so that everyone on their street corner has access, uh, has, has access to it and where do people find out where you get the flower or what places are using that flower this is where we need to get george and i'm just in the fields all the time but um yeah there's, there's george a, you come over where do we get where do people get the flower yeah, come on george. this is this is handsome george here gorgeous george what's that uh, so there's about 250 partner bakeries who we're working with up and down the country. If you go on our website, which is wildfarm.co.uk, you can see all of the list of those guys. And you've got a couple of bakeries, Jolene, isn't it? We, we, yeah, so we, we started out our whole kind of journey uh, with Dave and Jeremy from, from Jolene uh, in London, and we're now, I think there's six sites around town. Um, we will be in all the Marks and Spencer stores from end of September. There'll be three branded loaves in there or four branded loaves, maybe amazing. Uh, we're just about to start trials with nando so so yeah there's um, wow it's yeah. happening we're on the long road to greg's boys <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing really is phenomenal yeah so that was uh the last 20 years in in an hour 55 minutes whatever it is yeah. oh, that, was <laughs> that was a brush falling over don't worry um you're amazing i'm so inspired i admire your grit your determination your conviction to we're a standing cause. beside you yeah <laughs> there's more people supporting <laughs> so if people want to find out more check out wildfarmed.co.uk um, social media it's wildfarmed buy loaves with any type of diverse flour just start becoming more aware of our food choices yeah exactly and if you are as i say lucky enough to live near people who are who are doing interesting things then get yourself informed and get out there and and, and support them you know and um and if you've got access to the smallest patch of land or even a or even a window box just grow some stuff because the first time that you grow some stuff and take a leaf and munch it for me, at least, it changed my life. Amazing. Wow. Wow. You're brilliant. Really. 
I was thinking, is there any crowdfunding things? Because this is a, this is like a revolution of the food system. Is there any places where people, if people are really moved by this, where they can donate money or get involved behind it? Because this is this is central to human existence going forward. Really, how we? I think you know, the, yeah. We the more we can build this, and the more we can use people's different skill sets to do different things. Obviously, it is of existential importance that collectively we pull this off. Um, there is no future without it. I mean, there's. That's just unfortunately a fact. Um, however many sort of apps and technological gadgets we've got, if we don't have the thing that turns death into life, it's over. So um, I would just say if anyone's motivated, just send an email to info at wildfarm.co.uk. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, the, the more we can build this much talked about alliance, the more we've got a chance of getting out of jail. You're Love amazing. It. Long live the revolution. <laughs> <laughs> thanks a million. You're amazing. No, right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Jeez, you're brilliant. You really are feckin'. And I'd say we- that was amazing. Genuinely, one of the most enjoyable podcasts I've done. Sitting in situation. It was the first one we did on tour. Big shout out to Andy. Do support Wild Farmed if you can. Their flower is next level, and what they're trying to do is incredible. And what we yeah, we're certainly going to start stocking it and using it in our bakery. So if you can't support Wild Farm directly, buy bread from us or yeah. buy bread from other people that use his flower. And really really just incredible I know he's got a book coming out soon or maybe it is actually out and really what they're trying to do is incredible so really get behind it um, if this inspired you dig into check out their website follow them on social media and very important and if you're still here just to remind you our companion app is out to our course and we're super proud of it and you'll find details down below on the show notes yeah. thanks Mill, for listening great to have Sarah Fawcett and Ralph baby Ralph here in the studio and big shout out to the wonderful Shawnee Cahill thanks Mill. bye 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 b